Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. And uh, I see that you've started a movement, a, an important movement in American life, Never 280. What's it all about? It's really important, Eric. Twitter is thinking of taking their character limit, the number of characters you can put in a tweet, from 140, doubling it to 280. I guess they can do it technologically easily enough, and the 140 was an arbitrary limit having to do with how many characters you could have in an old uh, sort of text message tweet, I think, text message, I think, which is what they sort of base Twitter on. But as a conservative, I resist all change. So this is a well-established tradition, 140 characters. Twitter's been going for, what, at least six, seven years probably. So uh, I've been on a couple of years. So I'm hanging tough with 140. And I think concision is good. And 140 makes you express your thought, if you have a thought or an idea or ideal it or mini idea, whatever the heck you have on Twitter, uh, quickly. So I'm, I'm resisting the change. I'm mostly just goofing around, obviously. Given that that Twitter, the main thing that Twitter is good for is inadvertent um, career-ending mistakes, I would think that doubling the the length of tweets would just increase the opportunity for people to ruin themselves. Or the opposite. Maybe they have more time to explain. Of course, Donald Trump's got pretty good at the 140-character limit, so I expect him soon to weigh in and uh, in defense of the current system, which has served him well. So Donald Trump and I will be on the same side. (laughs) It's about time, Bill. Right, yeah. So this week in Trump news, um, we had an election, a primary election in Alabama, where the Trump-supported candidate and Trump himself got out-Trumped by an even Trumpier primary candidate. I mean, Trump really, President Trump, as a courtesy, I'd say almost, to Mitch McConnell, the majority leaders, and to all incumbent senators, supported the incumbent, appointed uh, incumbent, but uh, uh, Luther Strange. Uh, Trump, obviously the more Trumpy candidate was Roy Moore. He presented himself as that. He was supported by Steve Bannon and many other Trump-associated talk radio types. Uh, and Roy Moore won. Um, and I think it shows the strength of the... Now, Alabama's Alabama. It's not every state. But it shows the strength of the Trumpy sentiment in the Republican Party. And what it mostly shows to me is that we're now going to have primary challenges or just primaries and open seats in most, I've got to say maybe half, maybe most of the seats that Republican uh, Senate candidates seriously contest, and in a lot of the House seats where Republican nominees are, you know, might be incumbents, might be somewhat moderate, or in or, or open seats again. So we, this is something we really never have never seen a sort of sustained civil war across the Republican Party. Uh, in a, but in a party that controls the Congress and the presidency, we're used to having a lot of fights in the out party. You know, which right, way should the, we go? The Tea Party. Uh, yes, that's a good example. Was really an out party. Movement. Yes, we lost. What happened? Do we need fresh blood? Uh, here, you have it in the party that's allegedly governing. So that's very unusual. And I do think, and I, I, I call it a civil war, which then people think, well, you're blaming one side or the other. I really think this is more just people are entitled to fight for the future of the party. And Trump won the presidency. He wants a different kind of party. A lot of people who supported Trump want a different kind of party. There is a, there are a lot of incumbent senators and congressmen who won as themselves, and they want the kind of party they ran to be part of. And so it's an authentic clash. I don't think it's psychodrama. I don't think it's Donald Trump throwing his weight around. I don't think it's the Republican establishment being churlish and not giving way to the new guys. It's an authentic clash of visions about the Republican Party, and it's going to play out over the next year. It's going to be one of the biggest stories, one of the biggest political stories, certainly of the next year and maybe of of, of a bunch of years. 
Well, canary in the Senate coal mine for this stuff is is Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, who's got uh, Kelly Ward, uh, a very Trumpy candidate, um, moving against him for the primary. And uh, Jeff Flake is significantly down on polls. He's saying, well, polls at this point don't matter, but he's not objecting to what those polls are actually showing at this point. And I think a third candidate or fourth could get in there because some people will see, well, Flake is weak, but Kelly Ward has lost to McCain and isn't a great candidate. And maybe I, State Senator X, could sort of split the difference between the true. And this is what happens when you get politics that's really in turmoil, really in flux, a really fluid situation. All the old rules, you know, 98% of incumbents win. There won't be challenges to most incumbents. If there are challenges, they'll be kind of fringy and they'll get 28% of the vote. The, all those rules go out the window. And I think we'll see in state after state and district after district at the governor's level, maybe state legislative level, you know, two candidates, three candidates, four candidates, people whom we would have said in the old days, well, that person doesn't have a chance against X. X is supported by the Chamber of Commerce. X is supported by the incumbent governor. X is supported by the major interest groups. Uh, suddenly, it turns out that Y will have a good chance against X. So it's really a party in turmoil. Again, what's interesting about that is it's also a party that's supposed to be governing at the national level and in most states. It's got more state houses than the Democrats, obviously. So it's a very, I can't really think of an example of a majority party having this degree of dissension and turmoil. And one of the other things that happens is it encourages the Democrats to field better candidates than they might otherwise have put any money or effort into. In Arizona, I mean, Roy Moore, Alabama, he's still going to win in Alabama. I'm not 100% sure of that. I would say, I I think he's 85% likely to win. But Doug Jones, you know, is a reasonably good Democratic candidate, it looks like. We'll see what happens now in the real campaign. The state is just so lopsided that you're right. It's not like an Arizona situation. But, but Arizona is, is my point. Once upon a time, a very conservative state, libertarian conservative state, Goldwater conservative state, after years and decades of um, migration from failed parts of the country, California, New Jersey, mm-hmm. Arizona is no longer the sort of rock-ribbed Republican state that it once was. And we're seeing already... Um, announcement of uh, Democratic Representative Kirsten Sinema getting into the race on the Democratic side. She's very liberal, probably wouldn't have had a chance against a successful conservative senator in, in Arizona. But she's showing that the Democrats are empowered and encouraged by the developments. I think so. When one, uh, I think she's a pretty good candidate and, and uh, though quite liberal, and we'll see what happens. But I think, yeah, so the broader point you're making, which I very much agree with, is if you get massive turmoil in one party, and it's the party that controls at this point the Senate and the House and most governorships, by definition, you're you're going to have effects on the other party. One effect might be – I mean, the effects can cut both ways. You can get better candidates. That party could also get radicalized by its opposition to Donald Trump and a sense that they need fresh blood. They lost to Trump and they lost to all these senators in the past, obviously. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the minority. So maybe they go left. Maybe they go left and – center at the same time somehow, uh, they'll have their own degrees of turmoil. But I agree the, the general election results become less predictable. I mean, Alabama, I think, is you know, likely a state Republican, but suddenly it's a state that's not 100 percent locked down. And you could imagine the same happening in other states. You could ha- imagine some of the same thing happening in reverse. You could imagine, a, I mean, I'm not a fan of Trump, but you could imagine a tr- an attractive Trumpy candidate in a Democratic state suddenly getting working class support and putting an incumbent Democratic senator in danger. Any, any states where you think that would be on, on tap? 
Well, I mean, in a state like Indiana or Missouri, where there are vulnerable Democrats, states that Trump carried in, 2012, in 2016 uh, with Democratic senators who were elected in 2012, um, the Republican establishment has its favorites in both states for who they would like to run. And I think those people would be pretty good senators, very good. Maybe Josh Hawley in Missouri, uh, probably one of the two congressmen who's running in, in Indiana, will be the favorites of the kind of political class. But, you know, you could make a good and honest case that some Trumpy populists might do better in those kinds of states against a sort of establishment Democrat than an establishment Republican. And that's the argument they'll have in the primaries in those states. So the future of the Republican Party is also wrapped up in, in whether now that they have governing majorities on the Hill and the, and the White House, whether they can get anything done that resembles a conservative thing to get done. I mean, you can always get something done, but can you get something decent done? So we we see this week the proposal of tax reform. Uh, we've editorialized at the Weekly Standard in favor of this tax reform. Our colleague Fred Barnes is favorably disposed toward it. Erwin Steltzer, contributing editor, opposed to it, thinks it's going to boost the deficit and not help out with um, the economy in a broader sense. Where do you come down on that? I'm probably a little closer to Irwin, but I, I think, look, we're not, we don't have a final text. And when that text is final, it won't be final because it'll get negotiated. Tax reform is unlike other kinds of legislation usually, and I think it will be this time too, in that Congress really plays a huge role. And there are trade-offs, and the administration's involved, and, there's, and there are negotiations, and things change. And then, uh, there I wonder about the, if the administration even understands this, though. They have very inexperienced in Washington people running this, Gary Cohn, the head of the National Economic Council, and, and, uh, Steve, and Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, Mike Pence has been through this before, but not really many other people in and around the White House. Uh, and they sort of seem to think this is like they come up with the bill, and they talk to the Senate and House leadership, and then everyone just says, okay, well, I guess that's the bill. It's a binary choice. That's not how it works. And every interest group is going to lobby. Different states get affected differently. Different states get affected differently, depending on how some of these provisions are written in detail, state and local tax deductions. Different parts of different states get affected differently. So Barbara Comstock, my congresswoman in Fairfax County, is going to be worried about a bill that, as it now looks, isn't the one category of people it looks really not very good for is homeowners with incomes, hundred thousand maybe to three hundred thousand, sort of upper middle class homeowners. A lot of them in Fairfax County. A lot of them tend to vote Republican. Um, so there's just many, many more complex cross pressures on a tax bill than on most bills. Uh, a good, a competent administration handles those, negotiates those, doesn't take too dug in a position. As so Gary Cohn said didn't he, the other, yesterday or the day before, something that this is our first and final offer. That's just childish. I mean, no one thinks that's correct. And no one even thinks it's appropriate. Like, what they, they have a magic wand that makes them devise a perfect tax bill. But I think Erwin Stelzer's point I'd also make, I mean, they need to also make the case for why it's needed. I mean, they can say over and over, I mean, Republicans always are for tax cuts, and people generally like tax reform, make the code simpler. I see Paul Ryan always saying, you put it on your postcard. But this is a good example where... Some of the politicians, especially Republican politicians, tend to be themselves often businessmen who come into politics pretty well off, you know, uh, are a little out of touch. Most Americans do not pay a very complex tax form. The easy 140, 1040 form is easy, actually. If you don't itemize your deductions, it's not if you're if your payroll tax and, and your income tax is withheld, obviously, by an employer, it's not a huge headache for you. Maybe you'd like a tax cut. But are you getting a tax cut out of this bill? Maybe they should do something about the payroll tax. So I think it's much more the case for tax reform 
conservatives, Republican office holders have a strong case for it because, hey, we were sending to do something. We need to do something, as you just said, and something that's sort of conservative and Republican, which tax cutting is. But in the country as a whole, if you're growing 3%, if this looks like it might raise your taxes or endanger something that you care about, if you're not too sure about the debt, what about the debt? You know, maybe you say, you know what, there's no urgency to do this. So I think there's a little disconnect here between what Republican congressmen think they have to do and what actual voters might think is important. Or businessmen. I talked to some big, big, big medium-sized businessmen this week, as it happens in, in a meeting. Uh, I would say they would like some tax reform. They would like their own corporate taxes to go down or their uh, private, you know, what is that called, the uh, S-company uh, uh, taxes, the pass-throughs pass yeah. uh, to go down. They'd also like a lot of other things to happen, though, honestly. And I wouldn't say the taxes is even number one on their list compared to maybe some infrastructure if they're in the transportation business or deregulatory stuff if they're in energy business. So I, I think in the political class, we've all like, well, health care failed, tax reform's next, let's all focus on tax reform. But you need to make a case to the country for why it's important. Reagan had a you know terrible economic situation and a recession, and it was pretty easy to say, hey, we need this to happen. Uh, I think it's not so obvious. I think they're taking it too much for granted that everyone wants this to happen at this point. Now, maybe they can make the case, and maybe they will make the case, and there's a decent chance that politicians want it to happen, so maybe it'll happen. But I think they're on, it's a much more complex few months ahead than, than, than some of the commentary would suggest. In, in making the case, is Trump going to be an asset or a liability to the Republicans? Well, we'll, we'll, see, what he, we'll see what he does. He can be an asset if he—I think his instincts actually on taxes— are maybe better than some of his advisors. On other issues, he doesn't know much, and he can be a bull in a china shop. But um, I'd gather when he was presented the sort of final draft of the speech he was going to make introducing the tax bill, so this, I think he made the speech Wednesday, and I think this meeting was in the White House Monday, uh, he said, I, gee, this looks bad. Why are we increasing the lower bracket from 10 to 12%? And people said, well, it's complicated. We need to get some revenue out of that. But, but most people aren't going to be affected. But the deduction is going to go up. And ooh. and I, I kind of think Trump's right. I mean, really, is that a good headline to have? I mean, what's the point of it even? I mean, does anyone seriously think that's a better tax code? I mean, it's just jimmying with numbers. And it doesn't get you much revenue. And I just think it's such an obvious – when you're doing – when you're taking the estate tax to zero – the idea that you raise the lower bracket tax from 10 to 12%, those two together, that's a good 30-second ad. Then your response is, if you're a Republican congressman, wait a second, there's this thing with the standard deduction, that's doubling, sort of, uh, that's going up, even though you might lose the personal exemption, so that's not so great. But I, I just think they've given Trump's instincts, which are more marketing instincts and messaging instincts, are sort of right on this. It does matter how this thing is presented. Hillary Clinton is out there acting as though she's the future of the Democratic Party, but uh, I suspect she's not the future of the Democratic Party. And there's one potential candidate for 2020 on the Democratic side that you've taken note of. Uh, yeah, our, our friend, uh, contributor John Pat Horace, actually wrote this whole piece about this. They got a lot some attention in the New York Post, saying, "Why won't Oprah, Oprah Winfrey?" run and wouldn't she be a strong candidate if she did run? We've all speculated about that in the past. I think Jonathan Lass may have written the original piece about that a couple of years ago for us, maybe online. Um, you know, after Trump, why doesn't everyone at showbiz and everyone who's a billionaire think, I don't know, if he can run, I can run. Now, of course, it's not really that easy. And 98% of these people are not going to run for anything. And I suppose Oprah is unlikely to run. But I think her in John's instinct, Jonathan Lass' instinct, that 
if you have something as disruptive as Trump winning the nomination and then winning the presidency and then governing the way he's governing, and you have someone like Roy Moore getting to the United States Senate, which no one would have expected two or three years ago, you sort of it's foolish to say, well, those weird things have happened, but everything else is going to be business as normal and business as usual. And the Democratic race in 2020, it's going to be a bunch of governors and senators. It's going to look just like the Democratic race of 1988 or 1992. You know, it doesn't maybe. But maybe it really will be something different. So I think both in the Democratic side and in terms of independent candidacies, maybe challenges to Trump and the Republican side, there's much more potential for new people getting in who one wouldn't have thought were, were, were credible or possible 10, 20 years ago. And how important do you think it is for the Democrats to find a good African-American candidate, either for president or vice president, given the significant disparity and enthusiasm that African-American voters showed when Barack Obama was on the ticket as opposed to Hillary Clinton on the ticket? Well, it's worth considering. I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers in great detail. And maybe if you have a record of, uh, you know, campaigning on issues that the African-American community cares a lot about, that you can think they will turn out. I, I think Hillary Clinton's people were surprised they didn't turn out for her, especially when Donald Trump seemed like such an unsympathetic character. But um, maybe that does show that the, the wanting an actual African American on the ticket is, is is more important than some of us thought. I mean, I guess if I've got the math in my head basically right, something like 20% of the Democratic vote in a general election is African American. So that's if they turn out, maybe it's you know 24%. If they don't turn out, it's 19 or 18. That's a pretty big difference. You can see right away, right? I mean, and in, in an, a close fought election, yes. that's the difference. Yes. And in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, where there are substantial African American communities, it's very important. So, um, you know, I, I don't think, I think it's a consideration uh, for that, for the Democratic Party, just because that is a good chunk of their electorate. Poor Oprah, though, if she got in, she's so used to being sort of beloved that I think it would be a, a hard surprise for her how much dislike, let's put it that way, comes your way when you are an important candidate. I think that's right. I think that's, I mean, that was a case where Trump was not deterred from running because he's used to being in brawls and being attacked, uh, even though he's a little thin-skinned. Uh, he likes the fight. Uh, well, again, other reasons people like Colin Powell have not run in the past for that reason. If you're used to being a kind of subject of sort of bipartisan respect and friendship and even adulation in some cases, uh, it's you don't want to maybe get in some some street brawl for the for, for political office. Well, we're having a conversation. I'm having a conversation with Bill Crystal, but there is such a thing as conversations with Bill Crystal. It's an internet uh, video series of uh, intellectual conversations uh, to be found at conversationswithbillcrystal.org. And there's a new conversation series of videos up. Uh, you are talking with Paul Cantor a distinguished professor of literature at University of Virginia, about Shakespeare's Rome. What what were you getting at to, to discuss Shakespeare's Rome? Yeah, Paul's a great teacher, and I think that comes through in the conversation. He's written for us, of course, many, many pieces, uh, very interesting ones. Great Shakespeare scholar, and he has a new book out which really focuses on Shakespeare's three Roman plays, Coriolanus, uh, Julius Caesar, and, and Anthony and Cleopatra. And sort of what is Shakespeare teaching? Step back from the details. What is this? Is the picture of Rome as a republic, Rome making the transition to an empire. It's from a republic. It's a picture of how that happened and history and how that sort of happens almost psychologically and 
politically and people and the citizenry's souls. Uh, it's a very interesting interpretation, very, I think, convincing interpretation, uh, and a little more political not than the typical interpretation of Shakespeare, not political in the sense of he's for this or against that, but in the sense that what Shakespeare is partly trying to do in the Roman plays, this is also true in the English plays, uh, other plays, is show you a certain way of life and sort of how it might change over time and what, what its strengths are and what its blind spots are. So in that respect, it's more Shakespeare as a... Uh, political thinker, and not, again, not political in the narrow sense, but a thinker about how human beings organize different kinds of societies. Uh, most of the Shakespeare scholars tend to focus, understandably, maybe on the kind of individual psychology. Shakespeare is such a shrewd student of human nature. What's Hamlet really like? How does Macbeth, the soul of the tyrant? But what Cantor is showing is that he, Shakespeare is also a very shrewd uh, and thoughtful student of, of societies as a whole. Be sure to check it out at conversationswithbillcrystal.org. Bill, thanks for having this conversation today. My pleasure, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear podcast comes from The Great Courses Plus. One of our greatest joys is the pursuit of knowledge, learning more about the world around us, exploring new interests. That's what makes The Great Courses Plus so valuable. They find the brightest minds from the top 1% of professors in America and make them accessible in their video lecture series. Subscribe to The Great Courses Plus and you get unlimited access to stream and download thousands of videos on a wide variety of topics, history, politics, music, art, and much more. And right now, as one of our podcast listeners, you can start watching The Great Courses Plus for free. You might want to check out one of the courses I've enjoyed, The Modern Political Tradition, it's a terrific introduction if you're new to political philosophy and a worthwhile refresher course if you're an old hand. The Great Courses Plus are giving Weekly Standard podcast listeners a great way to find out just how valuable the programs are. An entire month of unlimited access to watch any of their lectures for free. All you need to do to get this special offer is to sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com standard. Start your free month today by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's it for the Crystal Clear Podcast. Be sure to tune in every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. I'm Eric Felton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>